It is, it is so good to see all of you. I was, uh, I was up here Friday uh, adding chairs to the auditorium. We typically don't have this many chairs in the auditorium. To do that, I had to scoot some of these chairs up in the front, and then I had to put less leg room in between the chairs, and I, the whole time, just weeping for your sad, comfortable selves. Thinking, oh, they are going to hate me. Because typically you could drive a, a good-sized um, car through our rows. And uh, we just do that for the, for the, for the children. Um, as you notice, we have a lot of children. As it close, closer it gets to communion, the louder it gets in here. Um, that's the sound of, uh, of small boredom. And then now that they have dismissed, I will try to um, keep you from making noise with grown-up boredom. Because that, that wouldn't be good either. I, we, we, in the 4th, 5th, and 6th grade class this morning, uh, we learned two things. Jesus conquered two things. Sin and death. And that's where we stand today. That's why we are here today is because Jesus conquered sin and death. He conquered sin on the cross, and not just sin. When I say sin, I, I mean something bigger than like, well, I lied, or was it a white lie? Was it an intentional lie? Like we try to kind of we parse sin sometimes, but sin is bigger than that. Sin is brokenness, and is sin is the way the world isn't quite what the world is supposed to be. And so we, Jesus conquered that, forgave that, and then conquered death, and we have resurrection. As well, so we celebrate that this morning by talking about David and Bathsheba. We'll get back to resurrection. I promise. Some of you, I I could audibly hear some of you clinch up just then. There was some muscle tightening. This isn't an April Fool's joke. We're going to get into David and Bathsheba, and then we'll get back to the resurrection, and hopefully it will work. Second Samuel eleven. Verse 1, it says, in the spring, at the time when kings go off to war. It was spring, it was war season. David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. This is a, this is a brief indictment on David here. This is, David has been fantastic up until this point. David has been the guy after God's own heart. He's defeated uh, Goliath. He's spared Saul. He's grieved Saul. He's been a good person. Like everything David ho- God hoped for David to be, God, David has been. And then all of a sudden, in the time when kings go off to war, David is absent from war. One evening, David got up from his bed, walked around on the roof, of the palace. From the roof, he saw a beautiful woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. I combine those two sentences. That's how I read. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And that's crazy that we like, we shame Bathsheba here. Like, what's she bathing on the roof? He didn't say that. Check that again. She wasn't bathing on the roof. He just saw her bathing like a creep. David's walking around on a roof looking for bathing women and he finds one. We, we're not going to go into detail in this story. 
April Fool's. Yes, I'm just kidding. We're not. We're not going to do that. We're not going into it. But the rest of the story is about David and Uriah. Uriah, you may not have heard that name before, is Bathsheba's wife. Bathsheba is named one time when David sees the woman and he said, hey, who's that? And his uh, friend, his uh, assistant says, that's Bathsheba, Uriah's wife. And the rest of the story, she is referred to as Uriah's wife. Her name doesn't come up again. Um, Uriah's wife is important because what David's sin here is against Bathsheba, yes, but it's also against Uriah because David uh, brings Bathsheba into his, uh, into his palace. Um, they have dinner and other things, and she goes home, pregnant. Now, that's a problem because Uriah's on the battlefield, and um, that can't happen while he's gone. So David says, "Oh no, I've got to, I've got to fix this." And so it turns into like an awful comedy of errors in which. David is bringing Uriah home and saying, hey, take a break from war. Go, go hang out with your wife. That's how David talks when he's nervous. Go hang out with your wife and, and, you know, and then you'll go back to war. And Uriah is a man of honor and he sleeps on the steps of the palace and says, if, if, my, if the soldiers can't be at home with their wives, then I'm not going to be either. So David's like, okay, I got to open a bottle of wine. So he gets uh, Uriah um, less inhibited, let's say. And then says, now, now you go home with your, and he still sleeps on the steps. So David does what anyone would do in this situation and has him killed. So he, thank you, Hannah. Sometimes on Easter, maybe some of you aren't used to me. Um, I was joking. That's not what anyone would do in that situation. Um, yeah, so he, uh, he sends him back, and he sends him back with his own letter that says, hey, put him on the front line whenever they start to advance. You push in and then have everyone except Uriah pull back, and then Uriah is going to die. Uriah dies. The... Uh, Oh, they're fighting a war back there. That's good. <laughs> Uriah dies. Bathsheba grieves. And then marries David. This is a startling turn of events if you are a, a, a Bible reader up to this point. Because David has been the good guy of the story. And all of a sudden... He's the bad guy. The story of David is retold in Chronicles. In the books of First and Second Chronicles. This is in First and Second Samuel. But in First and Second Chronicles, it's retold. And in Chronicles, they want to present David um, more positively. And they just omit this story altogether. This doesn't even show up in Chronicles. But here they are being more honest. And David, all of a sudden, is the bad guy of the story. He's been the good guy of the story this whole time, and there's just a hard line between chapter 10 and chapter 11, and he's the bad guy. How did he get here? And what, what made him think that this was okay? 
And we'll see in a second, he really does think it's okay. But I want to look at two other stories. Two other stories in which David's not the bad guy. But two other stories that are important nonetheless. So, at the end of 1 Samuel, David's running from Saul. And he, he shows up at this guy named Nabal. Um, Nabal is, or, or if you want to be in the south, Nabal. Uh, that's how we say it in the south. We, uh, he, he shows up and he, he sends some messengers to Nabal's house. And uh, he says, hey, uh, can, we, can we seek shelter at your place? And Nabal was a bit of an aggressive person. And he wasn't always, um, again, let's say uninhibited. Um, or inhibited. He, he, he had some drink in him. And he had some anger issues. And he said, who's David? And why am I trying to serve him? Well, David says, okay. Let's go take this guy's place by force. And they're marching up with all of the Lord's authority. And Abigail runs out, bows down and says, I'm so sorry, please don't destroy our house. Um, he's kind of psycho. Um, please, please honor me and don't hurt him. That happens, but later in the night, a couple of nights later, the, uh, uh, Nabal dies. And David's like, yes, Abigail was awesome. And so Nabal dies, Ab- David celebrates Nabal's death and then takes Abigail to be his wife. Pretty simple, right? You know, someone you just met, wife, they die, you get their woman. That's how it works. But that's how it worked here. First Samuel 25, he gets a wife. Nabal dies. Now, early on in the story, uh, he was promised a wife from Saul. David has the best wives. Um, he, he has all of them, all of the best wives. And he is, um, he, he, he just gets so many of them. Um, and one of them is uh, this, this woman named Michal, she, Michael, Michal. She, she has, um, she's Saul's daughter. And Saul says, uh, yeah, you can have her. And then whenever Saul gets mad at David and is trying to kill him, he's like, I probably shouldn't give him my wife. So he gives Michael to another man. That man's name is Paltiel. And in 2 Samuel 3, Saul's top advisor turns on Saul and goes to David and said, I'll serve you. And he says, don't show up again in my presence unless you have Michael. So Saul's top advisor has to walk off, get Michael. And it actually says in 2 Samuel 3, read that sometimes, uh, that Paltiel followed them weeping because that's his only wife. Some guy just showed up and was like, yeah, we're going to have to recall this one. And so there, he's leading, he's leading Michael back to David. David's taking the wife that was promised to him, but Paul T.L. is left with no wife. And, and they have to turn around and tell him, go home, you're embarrassing yourself. He's like, okay, I, I just don't, want, all right. You know, like at that point, he's, you know, he's making that, you know, like ugly cry. Paul Thiel's ugly crying. And, and so what we see here is David twice before has, has, has wanted a wife and gotten a wife. 
wanted a married woman and received her. And it wasn't necessarily wrong because there were, you know, Abner died and Michael was kind of promised to David. It's really Paltiel who took Michael from David. David just taking back what's rightfully. It's, it's, you could see where he would justify these things as he goes. It's just a habit. And it's something that has happened in the past. That's why when we get to David and Uriah, David is just sort of doing what he knows to do. He takes what he sees. And then when it doesn't work out, well, how do I get this to work? How would I take this woman? She is, well, Uriah is just going to have to die in battle. What's crazy about this is that uh, this man in the next chapter, a uh, man shows up, a prophet, named Nathan. God sent him to David, Second Samuel 12. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, gross, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep. Remember, he had a lot. He refrained from keeping, taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. Hey, David, how did you not know that he was talking about you? Like when, he, when you have a bunch of wives and you take this man's wife, his only wife, when you have a bunch of them, and he comes to you and says, yeah, so there was this really rich guy who had a bunch of, I don't know, let's say sheep. And this other guy had just one sheep that he loved. And uh, the big guy, the rich guy, took this one guy's sheep, even though he had a lot, he took his only sheep. How did David, not at that point, go, oh, I see what I've done. Because sin and deep sin, serious sin, is a slow fade into things. It takes time to get so deep that when someone calls you out, you're not even sure what they're talking about. And it's one little thing after another. Slowly, you got Abigail, Michael... You have Abner, Paltiel, you have Bathsheba, and Uriah. And all of a sudden, you're doing something that you have justified in your head. Deep down you know it's wrong, but you've just slowly gotten there. And that, that's hard to overcome in your own head. Because you... This slow fade up to sin. Where 
Once you were one thing and now you've just slowly taken one step after another and you've gotten to a place and you may be looking at yourself and thinking, how did I get here? And maybe even the most dangerous part is you don't even know you're there yet. You're not even sure how you've gotten there. He wanted to hear the sermon so bad. I don't know if y'all saw him come in. He had the sunglasses on and they were amazing. Like, yes. Like a little baby white Ray Charles. It was fantastic. So, uh, so maybe, but maybe you're at a place and, and you can kind of tell this, uh, the thing that bothers you the most about other people there's a good chance, or the things you assume about other people, there's a good chance that's kind of what you're wrestling with. And you're really upset with yourself, but your brain won't let you be, so you're projecting that on to somebody else, and you're saying, oh, I can't believe they would do that. Well, you don't know they did, did that. You don't know their attitudes, but you're projecting bad attitudes onto other people. That's probably something you're wrestling with deep down. You've got to be angry at somebody, and you don't want to be angry at yourself. You might as well be angry at other people, for what you wrestle with. It's called projection. Every human does it. Pay attention to when you do it. Maybe you don't even know you're there yet. You don't even know you've kind of hit that apex of, like, this is the worst thing I've done, and I've gotten there slowly and in a steady way. I've I've made one decision after another, after another. And when you get to that point and you realize, oh, no. Because David here says he was angry. It's like that guy, whoever would do who would do such a thing, David says. As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a great thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. And this isn't like the, the way they meant it in the 80s. You know, like, I'm the me, yo soy el hombre. You know, I don't mean it like that. <laughs> it's an indictment. It's a, you are the guy that you hate the most. That is such an awful place to get to. An awful realization when you say, I'm the person I dislike. I'm the sinner that needs to repent. I'm the problem in my life. It's an awful feeling to have, but it's actually a great place to be. Because at this point, you know what needs to be solved. You know, before when you thought everybody else was the problem... That you were just the main character overcoming you know, one problem after the other. We joke about this a lot here, but I don't know if you've ever walked into the mall or Walmart or Target and thought, well, there are way too many people here. You're blaming all the other people, but you never leave. You never solve the problem. You just participate in it. But when you realize, oh my goodness, I'm the one I don't like. 
I'm the one with the problem. I'm the one with the sin. I'm the one with the brokenness. I'm the one in need. When you realize that, you're just... It's, actually, it's an awful thing to feel. But it's a great place to be. Because the path forward from there is hard, but beneficial. It's difficult, but rewarding. The, you've, you've made this slow ascent to sin, and you don't just like, oh, well, you know what? Tomorrow then I'm going to start being perfect. Whew. Sunday, I don't have a watch. Sunday at wrist, we're going to have to... We're going to... I'm... Today, I remember the day I started being perfect. Do you remember that day? I remember that day. It was a good sermon. No, there's no, there's no immediate get back to where you were called to be. It's a slow, gradual step back. You're going to realize that oh, I'm, I'm making that same mistake again. And you're going to self-evaluate day after day. And it's going to be a slow descent back. If it was a slow walk to where... Um, you are, it's going to be a slow back, walk back to where you want to be. It's going to be hard. And it's going to take self-control. It's going to take perseverance. And you are not going to be able to do it alone. And there may be a part of you that goes, Oh, goodness, I've got to get all this in order before I can get my Christian life back on the path. And David said that. David said, I, I'm a sinner. I deserve to die. I'm a sinner. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan, just so quickly, the Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die. Wait. Now, Nathan does say there will be consequences. There will be serious consequences. There will be a civil war in your own family that, that you, the throne will be try, they will try to take the throne from you. And his son, his son actually seeks revenge on him and seeks the throne. And they fight and he loses children over this. There will be consequences. But your sins are forgiven. You will have to battle out of this. But your sins are forgiven. See, I think, I think one of the things we wrestle with, with with Easter is that we think we have climbed this hill of sin. Maybe that, that moment of realization, that moment of clarity for you was way back in the past. A lot of people have those moments in college where they wake up somewhere like, where am I? And then they're like, I've got to get my life in order. A lot of people have those realizations in marriage when they think, this, if I keep being the same person, this thing's not going to work. A lot of people have those realizations when they have kids and they think, oh my goodness, my kid is looking like me. And I don't think that's good. A lot of people have those realizations and now they're fighting that daily struggle back. And I think a lot of times we get to the apex of sin and then we start to think, if I could just get back to where I need to be. 
that's not where Jesus dies on a cross for you. That's not why Jesus died on the cross for you. Is so that when you get back to where you need to be, you can find a relationship with God. That's not why. That that's not why we are called to be the people of God, so that we can, at some point, be perfect, and then find acceptance. It is at the very moment of the cross that you found forgiveness. It is at the very moment of the empty tomb that you find resurrection. Like David in front of Nathan saying, I, I have sinned and I deserve death. I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan says, no, no. Your sins are forgiven. Death will not win. And Nathan says, your sins are forgiven. There will be consequences. But death will not win. I think we sometimes confuse the consequences of our sins with the salvation of our sins. We are broken. Not, not every relationship is going to go the right way. Not every, um, not every endeavor is going to go the right way. We're not gonna, we're, we are not going to be flawless. Except through the eyes of Jesus. Except through the lens of the cross. We will get what we deserve. Except when we stand at the empty tomb. This slow fade up to sin. You may have been living that your whole life. You just sort of do what you do when you want to do it. Not what God called us to. But see here, the good news is not that you can repent and if you get better, God will be in relationship with you. The good news is God sent His Son so that you can be in relationship with God, so that you can have salvation and victory over death, that Jesus can conquer sin and death, so that we can make our way back to Jesus. We get those confused all the time. And if you're waiting for you to be perfect, to be in relationship with God, you're going to be waiting a long time. And when you get to the place where you realize that you have achieved perfection, none of the people in your life will like you. Thank you. They won't because you won't be seeing the things that are broken about you. It's okay to be broken. It's okay to need saving because we have a savior. It's okay to be full of sin and death because we have a savior who conquered sin and death. And, and we may feel like you may feel like at some point, like I'm, I'm just the worst person. Yeah, there will be consequences, but your sins are forgiven. You will not die. You'll have to deal with the, with the messes you've made. But your sins are forgiven. And you will not die. You slowly walked up to a point of no return. 
Your sins are forgiven. You will not die. Not for long anyway. Death has no power. Sin has no control. We may think that we've got to live out these consequences so that we can get to salvation, but the cross and the tomb, those those are the things that bring salvation. Your perfection is not something that will bring you hope. But a sacrificial cross, sacrificial death, a Savior, the name of Jesus, an empty tomb, the resurrection, that brings hope, that brings forgiveness, and that brings life. We celebrate the loss of sin and the conquering of death by giving our lives to Jesus. Um, whether it's, again, maybe you gave your life, maybe you were baptized a long time ago and you just, you just, you just kept climbing that hill. Kept taking those small steps towards something you won't, rec- you won't recognize later. Or maybe you've never given your life to God and you may think, listen, that story of a man dying and then not staying dead is nuts. That's crazy. I want you to know this morning that I'm with you. It's unexplained. Unprovable. But I have faith and my faith in that victory is the only thing that I've got to keep me going in a broken what I have hope in and it's, it's the Spirit of God guides us from that point of salvation from the cross to a better life. Not a perfect life. But a life where you see yourself clearly through the eyes of Jesus as saved and broken all at the same time. As a sinner who is redeemed by a loving and sacrificial God. If you want to be in relationship with that God this morning, whether you want to give your life back or you'd like to be baptized into his death, burial, and resurrection, what a great time to symbolize the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus in your life through baptism than on Resurrection Sunday. I get it that April Fool's Day is an awful time to do it. Resurrection Sunday is a fantastic time to do it. Give your life to Jesus back to Jesus today. Please come forward while we stand and sing.